from the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. Welcome to another episode of the Superpower School podcast. In today's episode, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We've got a very special guest uh, who I just thought was so unique. I had to get him on the podcast. Now, I don't know too much about him. And I think the magic of doing this podcast is actually to discover more about our guest as we go along with the conversation. But what I do know is he's written a book uh, about the secrets of Amazon. And uh, unfortunately, we couldn't get Jeff, Jeff Bezos. Uh, So we've got the next best thing. We have Steve Anderson on the show today. So hey, Steve, how are you doing? I am great, Patty. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, you're welcome, Steve. And yeah, I'm really excited about this episode because this sounded like a really cool book. I, I saw it on uh, Amazon and I thought, hey, you know what? I'm going to try. I'm going to try and get this guy on the show today. So Steve, let's kick off with just getting to know you a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, I actually come out of the insurance industry. I've been in it uh, my entire career, um, working early on in my career, selling insurance to businesses uh, primarily. And then Later in my career, I developed an interest in technology and how the insurance industry uh, uses technology or needs to use technology. So the last 25 years, I've done research, writing, speaking, and consulting around technology and how the industry can best utilize it. Um, And and actually, that's kind of how the book idea came about. I came up with this idea a few years ago now. Um, I was working in technology. I realized technology was changing so rapidly that was the biggest risk business face today actually not taking enough and and kind of it counterintuitive for the insurance industry because I you know everything the insurance does is to mitigate risk, try and reduce risk, right those kinds of things. But with technology, And again, the development so rapidly, the risk is actually in inaction and not doing enough and not experimenting. So that led me to start researching that idea, looking at businesses that have been successful uh, and are no longer around. So what happened? And businesses that are successful and continuing to be successful. And certainly the unsuccessful ones somewhat well-known, right? Either Kodak, BlackBerry, Blockbuster, CompUSA, Sears. I mean, we have lots of examples, you know. And I started trying to figure out what's the difference. Well, I came across Amazon as an example of a company that continues to grow and be successful. And in that research came across the letters to shareholders that Jeff Bezos wrote, starting in 1997 when they went public, Uh, And actually ending in 2020 when he stepped away from being CEO of Amazon uh, and move into a executive chairman role. And so I read through those letters. I mean, and literally over a few days, read them in sequence and was astounded at how much information Bezos talked about 
in those letters about how Amazon grew and the mindsets and uh, ideas, uh, some which were very counterintuitive to the way many businesses run today. So that was kind of the germ of of the idea of the book. And uh, eventually through several iterations came up with what I call 14 growth principles that Amazon has used to grow that I believe apply to any company if they're willing to uh, think differently about what they're doing and how they're doing it. Oh, that sounds really interesting. <laughs> I, I guess, yeah, I would never have thought about letters to shareholders as being a place where we're going to see such value. Exactly. And I would say it's very unusual. I mean, most letters to shareholders are touting the business and what they've done and, you know, the CEO and how great they are and and those kinds of things. But there are a handful of um, CEOs who use it as an opportunity to, uh, I think, teach or, you know, kind of talk philosophically. And, and I think that's what Jeff Bezos did. And I frankly think he will go down in history as one of the best CEOs that um, that's out there right now. Got it. And as part of your research, then, Steve, did you compare against any other organizations or was it predominantly Amazon, the one that you focused on? I, I decided to focus on Amazon, um, again, because the information was so rich. And so, you know, the 14 principles I've grouped into what I call four cycles, test, build, accelerate and scale. And I believe every business is going through those cycles all the time, either new products, new platforms, new services. They're testing them out. They're building on that success. They're accelerating that growth. And then they're scaling that uh, into uh, bigger areas. And the principles in each of those sections can lend themselves to how did Amazon do it? And maybe for me, more importantly, how any business could look at it and start adopting some of that mindset. Um, and, and I think I always want to try and emphasize the fact that today we know Amazon as huge, right? Uh, whatever the current $1.6 trillion market cap and all those kinds of things. But I, I try and emphasize that Bezos started in a garage like every other entrepreneur. And so if you're thinking, I'll never be another Amazon, you're probably right. But that doesn't mean you can't learn how to grow as much as you want to grow. Maybe you don't want to be an Amazon, but you want to be successful as an entrepreneur. You're creating a lifestyle that fits you as an individual. And again, I think Bezos and his thought processes can help you achieve whatever goals you have. Right. No, that's a really good point because I, absolutely, I think a lot of people will be thinking, well, how on earth could we even compete with Amazon or, you know, it's a completely different right. business model. And w would you say, you know, this book is aimed at leaders? Is it aimed at kind of team level people? Like who who's it aimed at? I would say leaders probably first because they generally are the ones that again, have to lead, right? Have to either if they want to adapt or change things in their business, it, it really, it doesn't have to start at the top, but it's easier if it does. But also 
teams or individuals or product managers or whatever position that might be in the organization, a lot of times that change can kind of percolate up from somebody trying it in their division and having success. And then all of a sudden, right, the leaders, the CEO, the owners take notice. And then, you know, what have you done differently? And that is another way that change can be um, not just managed, but um, incorporated into an organization. So it really could be two, two different ways, top down or bottom up. Great. And you mentioned that you found some really interesting counterintuitive approaches that Amazon used. Could you share some of those? Well, and they, again, they lent the, themselves into the principles. So my first principle is called encourage successful failure. And I won't tell you the long story how that phrasing came about, but it's typically not something you hear about success and failure in the same phrase. But something Bezos understood very early on is that success comes from experimentation. And I would say this is a, a counterintuitive thought process. I think all of the emphasis today on innovation is misplaced. Um, I think businesses, I, I can't say they don't need to innovate, but I think that's a byproduct of invention. And that's actually principle number three, practice dynamic invention and innovation. But at Amazon, failure goes hand in hand with growth. And, and so here's what Bezos thinks. You've got to experiment in order to find out what's going to work. And experimentation allows you to invent. And one of my favorite phrases he uses over and over again in these letters is, we at Amazon invent on behalf of the customer. And we start from the customer and work backwards. And again, I think those are um, ideas that um, can be incorporated into anything that a business does. So this idea of successful failure and what Bezos says is, if you're going to experiment, you're going to fail. Because if you're experimenting and you don't fail, it's not an experiment. If you know the outcome, it's not an experiment. If you don't know the outcome, then failure is something that you have to be willing to, again, his words, suffer the consequences of to find the things that work well. And I can give you all kinds of examples of things that were experiments that today are core part of what Amazon does and the services they provide. Oh, that'd be great to hear, actually. I certainly know they, they started a pet business that didn't quite work out. Oh, yeah. That was early in the early two, the, you know, dot-com bubble, right? All of that kind of stuff. They actually invet, invested in pets.com. Again, thinking if we invest in that company, then we don't have to build it out at Amazon. We can use that. Again, miserable failure uh, and expensive failure at the time for Amazon. So a couple quick ones. Um Prime, Amazon Prime, right? So kind of ubiquitous now. And early on, the friction point for customers was having to pay shipping. And so they tried a few things. They experimented. So you had, you know, 
uh, early saver shipping. So if you bought $25 or more of product, then you got shipping free. So they experimented with that and a couple of other iterations of taking that friction away from the customer so that they would buy more. And Bezos literally decided one day that he was going to do Prime, yearly subscription, and free shipping regardless of the amount paid. In fact, I just ordered you know something I needed for our holiday dinner coming up, um, and and it was you know five bucks, free shipping. It was easier just to click buy, right? So that friction is taken away. And and what Bezos said with Prime, because everyone else in the company said we can't afford to pay shipping. No one else is paying shipping. What Bezos said is if it's better for the customer, it will be better for Amazon and ultimately better for our shareholders. Well, fast forward, what, 22 years now from when Prime was actually started. And I think the results have proven themselves, right? Now, Prime and free shipping is the standard in e-commerce platforms. Now, I'll do another one real quick. Marketplace sellers. So allowing third-party competitors to Amazon to actually sell on Amazon's website, literally in direct competition with Amazon's own products. Now, they did some experiments. They had Amazon auctions trying to compete with eBay at the time. Failure. Didn't work. Nobody wanted, nobody came. They had what they called Z shops. Z shops was a separate part of Amazon. You actually had to log in as a customer to a different part of the website. And there's third party sellers. You could see their products and services. Again, utter failure. Didn't work. Nobody wanted to log in twice. But again, back to, If it's better for the customer, it will ultimately be better for Amazon and our shareholders. So they allowed those third-party sellers to be on the same page. And and literally, again, 22 years later, other Walmart, Target are starting to build third-party marketplaces in their platforms because they've seen the success at Amazon. But counterintuitive at the time. Who in their right mind lets your competitors on your most valuable, you know, property, your website that you've spent billions of dollars developing? But now Amazon has created a whole separate business with third-party sellers representing just under 60% of all sales on Amazon.com are coming through third-party sellers and then using their fulfillment network to actually deliver those products as part of the Amazon experience. Those are just quick failures and then huge successes because they were willing, one, to bet long-term and willing to experiment with a focus on the customer. Wow. And I I guess with those failures, I mean, for for a business like Amazon, they've obviously got huge revenues. And I would remind us that Back in 2000, they were still struggling. They were trying to grow. They had survived the dot-com bust at that time, and they didn't have all the resources they do today. So they were big bets. They were big experiments. So I got to tell you one of their biggest failures. In 2014, 
Jeff Bezos got on stage in New York City, sort of looking a little like Steve Jobs, and announced the brand new Amazon Fire phone. Bezos' pet project, a phone that basically was designed to make it easier to shop on Amazon. Now, think about it. 2007, the iPhone came out. Android phones were out. People have already picked the phones they were going to use. Who needed another phone option? Well, come to find out, nobody. And in fact, at one point uh, in 2014, they dropped the price of the phone to 99 cents and they couldn't give it away. Last quarter of 2014, Amazon wrote off $178 million in development and inventory costs. And you have never seen a phone from Amazon since. (laughs) Huge failure, expensive. However, back to my first principle, encourage successful failure. Where's the success out of that? Four months after Bezos announced the Fire Phone, he got his first demonstration for another product out of that same department called Lab 126, their hardware development area of a cylinder that could sit on a counter or a desk that you could ask a question of it and it would respond. The first iteration of what we have come to know as Amazon Echo and Amazon Alexa, the machine learning um, uh, software, right, that allows the Echo to do what it does. Huge success coming out of a failure of the phone, but they were able to successfully take what they learned about voice processing on the phone and translate it into a device that now has become a part of people's home experience, right? Wow. Yeah, no, that's amazing, isn't it? And so in terms of some of the other principles in the book, Steve, what's the other two really big ones that you would recommend? Well, um, again, that's always I, that's always a hard question for me. And, and I, I kind of put it in terms of, That's like asking me, which of my seven grandchildren do I love best, right? So it's hard. But I would say a couple kind of stand out in terms of resonating with people. I think one is um, principle four, which is obsess over customers. Now, I think every business pays attention to their customers. They have great customer service. We have lots of names we call it, right? Great customer service customer journey, customer focus, right? All those kinds of things. At Amazon though, Bezos used in that very first 1997 letter, the term obsess. We will obsess over customers. Um, And I think that's just an interesting take on how they look at the customer. I already mentioned earlier this idea of inventing on behalf of the customer and starting with the customer and then working backwards into product services and platforms that customers maybe don't even know they need, but resonate with like an echo, right? If you had told somebody, do you, you know, want a device that sits on a counter, looks like a Pringles jar or something, and you can talk to, you know, nobody knew even what that would mean. So they experimented, they talked to customers and this idea of obsessing over customers is behind, you know, two-day delivery, one-day delivery, same-day delivery, you know, all of those kinds of things um, that Amazon looks at and focuses on. So I think that's one. Um, 
I think that another one that's really interesting is what I call, it's in the accelerate cycle, uh, generate high velocity decisions. One of the things that Bezos says is that as companies grow, there is a tendency to take decision making and make it more complicated than it needs to be. So he says there are two types of decisions and he calls them type one and type two. Type one decisions are big, bet the farm. Um, if you make a wrong or a bad decision, it could materially affect the company. And he says, there are very few type one decisions. Type two decisions, however, are kind of the day-to-day -day decisions that you make. What product are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? How, what new products do we need to develop? And he said, type two decisions are easily reversible. And the way he describes it is, if you walk through that door of a type two decision and you don't like what you see, you can either pivot to a different decision or literally turn around and walk back that decision. And he says, the problem is that as a company grows, they tend to take type two decisions and put them into a type one decision process. And you see that in the bureaucracy that gets created with decision-making. So, you know, a staff person has an idea. They have to take it to their supervisor. Their supervisor has to take it to the manager. The manager has to take it to the regional VP, the, right? All those layers. And he says, all that does is slow down decision-making, which slows down growth. And so I think that's a really interesting principle that businesses can should be thinking about and how do you create high velocity and high quality decisions um and and for amazon part of that formula of how to do that is you hire high capable people and you don't compromise so like when you're growing fast right there's a tendency to oh i just need a body Amazon doesn't do that. They'll wait till they get the right person to fit in the right job. Secondly, they create small groups, what originally were called two pizza teams. So a team at Amazon could be no bigger than what two pizzas could feed. Um, and he says, we don't need to create better communication and bigger teams. We need to keep in small teams, let them focus on one piece of the puzzle of what we're building, be it a product or a platform or service, and, and let them make decisions. Because again, we encourage successful failure. So if they decide something that doesn't work, they have the freedom, one, not to be punished as an employee, because I believe employees aren't afraid of failure. They're afraid of the consequences of failure. And so I think high velocity decisions is is a really core piece, one of how Amazon continues to be able to create new products and platforms and services um, at, at what I consider to be an amazing pace, certainly in compared with other companies. I, I think what re really resonated about what you just talked about there was the, you know, lots of companies pay attention to customers mm -hmm. and everyone's saying the same thing, right? Put the customer first all of these good things, give them a great customer experience. But after a while, 
you kind of get immune to that. And it doesn't really mean anything anymore because every organization is saying the same thing. But to actually say we need to obsess about the customer, now that's got my attention. Yeah, straight away is sparking some thought that, hey, this is different. This is more than just something we need to do. We absolutely have to do this now. And, and Amazon has three customer pillars, started in 97, still today, um, wide selection. I think you probably could agree they've been pretty successful with that. Low pricing. I think that's you know, generally, not always, right? And then fast delivery. And I think, again, you can see how successful they've been. And they were willing early on to forego profits to build infrastructure. Bezos knew either intuitively or, or however he knew, he knew that delivery was going to be a key differentiator for Amazon to other competitors that are out there. And so he was willing to invest lots of money. In fact, for many years, people would say, you know, Amazon doesn't have any profits. How can they continue to, to grow? But they were reinvesting everything into fulfillment centers and delivery networks. And, and, and now, because of that early investment, I mean, they're taking on FedEx and UPS and all of the traditional delivery. And, and I think it would not be it's sort of an easy prediction to say that Amazon has created a fulfillment network that they then, again, third parties can tap into that fulfillment network and know because of Amazon's excellence that those packages will arrive when they say they will. A high percentage of the time. They're not perfect by any stretch. Um, and, and I would even say with customer obsession, this, this, you know, because I know there are a lot of people there that Amazon's too big and, and all of those kinds of things. One of the potential downsides of customer obsession has been and maybe is workers in the fulfillment center. Because if you're obsessed over customers, you're always pushing to get those packages to the customers s sooner than they expect, right? You want to create a better experience and sometimes overlooking employees and and how you treat them and again one thing interesting at amazon if they see they're wrong about something they will pivot so there are now two new leadership principles around building amazon as the best place to work and the safest place to work some of the criticism they've received they're addressing um head on and, and working to create better environments for their employees, especially fulfillment center workers. Got it. And Steve, if we think about the future for Amazon, I mean, you mentioned there a little bit about the fulfillment arm and uh, the investment they're making on that front. Are you aware of sort of the next big things that they're looking to get into? Well, they're continuing, and again, my experience is a bit more U.S. focused, for example, than U.K. or other places. They are continuing to grow worldwide, um, looking at, you know, India and some of those big growth areas. So I think you'll continue to see them 
experimenting, working, testing, figuring out what works and doesn't work. Um, and, and even those cultural differences, how best to address those appropriately. But, um, you know, here in the U.S., one of the interesting things is they're building out a better uh, delivery network for rural people where UPS just announced uh, next year, they actually are surcharging certain zip codes that are in uh, remote areas. Amazon's building infrastructure to, I, I, you know, in my mind, take over that or be able to step in there when some of these other uh, businesses are are stepping out, um, et cetera. So we'll see. But uh, I think it's pretty fascinating. Again, their willingness to invest long term to build the infrastructure they think they need. So that's kind of retail. I, I have to say, Another really interesting project that I'm paying quite a bit of attention to is called Project Kuiper, K-U-I-P-E-R, which is they're um, building low Earth orbit satellites using Blue Origin or other rocket companies to send these small bread box sized satellites into orbit, creating a mesh network. And again, low Earth orbit means that latency for traditional satellite is significantly better and higher speed internet access literally anywhere you are. And again, they're experimenting with rural areas that don't have good, you know, internet access, broadband speed, et cetera, to provide it through satellites. And I think that's a whole nother business that they're investing in that will be pretty interesting. And certainly SpaceX is doing it also. Um, so again, I think that whole satellite internet area would will be very interesting to watch over the next few years. 